Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Leif Rasmussen today. Uh, Leif, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. We're glad to have you here uh, for your sort of, you're not a public figure exactly. So, uh, you know, why don't you explain to the audience like who you are and what your background is? Sure. Um, so I'm a, a PhD candidate in a computer science department. Um, I have a pretty varied background. Um, I actually, I dropped out of high school. Um, I, I, I was a DJ for a while. Then really? Slowly, I, I also dropped out of high school, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I had heard that in a conversation you maybe were having with, um, I know, like Rob Henderson, too, also has a background kind of similar to mine and yours. Um, so I think I remember the two of you talking about that. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I, um, yeah I'm a bit older for, you know, the average PhD candidate, so. I dropped out of high school back in the 90s, and then I spent a while going to rave parties and trying to be a musician and, you know, working in retail and IT and things like that. And then eventually I went back to community college when I was in kind of my mid-20s. Um, you know, and with with computer science, um, you know, especially back during kind of the, the dot-com bubble, uh, you know, people would come and recruit outside of uh, sophomore level computer science classes to try and get you to drop out and just come and work for them. Uh, so I had taken enough classes to be employable. So I really had no incentive to finish my undergrad quickly. So I kind of, I think it took me like something like 12 years to finally graduate with an undergrad degree. Um, and I ended up doing minors in physics and math and stuff like that, just because I was kind of having fun with it and playing around. Um, and then when I finally did, I got into tutoring a little bit and I found that to be more satisfying than, uh, you know, developing features for software that never get released or, you know, just, just, um, software development can be a little, you know, uh, isolating you're kind of, you know, to use a Marxist term, actually, you know, kind of alienated from your own labor. Um, mm -hmm. so I found tutoring more satisfying. So then at that point, you know, I decided, well, maybe I'll apply for some PhD programs. Um, I'm from Chicago. I have a lot of family here. So I only applied, you know, to local programs in Chicago. And I just thought, you know, if I get into a good program in Chicago, then I'll do that. Otherwise, I'll just, you know, get a job. Um, so, uh -huh. you know, I'm about three years into a PhD program now. Um, what part of Chicago are you from? I'm from the north uh, suburbs like Skokie, Morton Grove, Niles kind of area. Okay. Yeah, I'm from the South Suburbs. And everybody I meet uh, from Chicago is always from the North Suburbs because the South Suburbs are poorer. That's true. Yeah. I keep like this where I come from, you know, a lot of like upwardly mobile kind of immigrants. Um, I think at some point Skokie had the largest Jewish population like outside of Brooklyn. Yeah, that guy came famous because the Nazis were going to march there. And that's what everyone used to say, right? That that's the like the biggest Jewish population or something like that. Yeah, and ironically, like in high school, you know, when we learned about that, um, you know, from Jewish teachers and stuff like that, we learned that it was like heroic of the ACLU to defend the Nazis, right, to march in Skokie. So like since I was in high school, there's been a total like sea change on that kind of thing.
Oh, yeah, not questionably. Yeah, this was the, like, the normie lib uh, taken like during the Bush administration. It was like any like hint of like, you know, bullying on free speech was treated just like as a huge taboo. So, yeah, I mean, the last five, 10 years, I mean, it, it, it's really, really changed. And I guess this is what we're uh, I guess this is what we're talking about in your new report. So, I mean, you wrote for us uh, for uh, there's a report called Increasing Politicization and Homogeneity in Scientific Funding and analysis of NSF grants, 1990 to 2020. Uh, and it's gotten um, a lot of attention. Uh, so uh, tell us, uh, for so there's two main findings, right? There is the politicization of uh, NSF funding, and then there's um, a decrease in sort of the, uh, uh, the scope of the language used. Uh, so doc- successful NSF uh, grants, this is the abstracts we're talking about, are becoming more similar. Uh, can you talk about the methodology Let's just start with uh, politicization. Uh, what did you find? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if I, you want a, a little bit of a backstory. Um, sure. You know, this went out and, you know, one comment I saw already was someone saying, oh, this person probably doesn't know anything about, you know, what it's like to actually apply for an NSF grant or something like that. Uh, <laughs> so I just want to counter by, I was actually doing research to, you know, uh, help co-author an NSF grant application. And I started searching through, the NSF's database of past grants to look for things that were kind of related to my work and see what has already been hit and stuff like that. And, you know, I just started seeing things that were a little bit laden with, you know, sort of diversity, equity, inclusion type of stuff. And, you know, I just got curious. I'm like, you know, I wonder how much this, you know, those terms have kind of been turned up over the last few years. Um, And then, you know, I kind of had this thought, like, you know, wouldn't it be ironic if, while the talk of diversity is increasing the actual kind of linguistic diversity of the ideas within these proposals is actually waning. Um, so, you know, I started, I just kind of piecemeal started running little experiments on, uh, you know, the, the archive data, um, you know, just here and there out of curiosity. And really I started this, you know, probably before the summer and it was just kind of, Oh, I was having fun just uh, making little graphs and like showing people in my department. Um, so, you know, it, it, it came together slowly as a, as a, as a paper. Um, it just started with my own curiosity and kind of wanting to either confirm or refute some of my priors about what was going on with this stuff. Um, so I have a background in computer science and, you know, natural language processing is kind of a subfield of uh, computer science kind of related to artificial intelligence where we can look at big corpuses of text and we can do statistical analysis to kind of find out things about trends or even even to kind of assess the content of text, classify different documents into the sort of family of documents they belong to by the frequency of different words and things like that. Or even, you know, sentiment analysis is a big field where people try to look at reviews of products and kind of ascertain, you know, automatically with uh, natural language processing techniques, whether it's positive or negative or things like that. So there's a lot of different tools that come from that training that you can kind of use to look at, um, big corpuses of text. And, you know, I didn't, I don't know if people don't really want to mess with the NSF because that's what, you know, especially in computer science, that's what keeps a lot of departments and labs afloat and stuff like that. Um, So I just thought, you know, I'd use some of these techniques I'd learned in classes over the years as a computer scientist to kind of look at the, uh, 
the corpus of uh, abstracts of NSF uh, awards. And so, yeah, you know, I first noticed this increase in these, you know, kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion terms that you kind of see happening everywhere else on campus and the academy. And, I, you know, it's spilled, it's spilled off of campus into the real world too. But I just wanted to see, you know, it, I wanted to check myself too. I wanted to, you know, make sure I wasn't just being hyperbolic and exaggerated in my thinking that this stuff is just kind of going crazy. So I wanted wow. to kind of actually look at the NSF data and maybe, you know, potentially refute um, some of my priors. Um, but it, it, it didn't do that. And then, you know, once I saw this dramatic increase of these terms, I thought, well, we can look at the kind of, um, we can look at the similarity of documents in terms of word frequency, which is a common tool used to categorize documents, you know, if... if um, Before we get to the, uh, the, uh, the categorizing documents and placing them together, let's just talk about the, uh, the initial results, right? Uh, so the initial results with regards to word count, uh, so... Um, you know, so I think the top line figure is that we have, you have these seven terms, right? They're politicized terms, equity, diversity, inclusion, gender, marginalized, underrepresented, underrepresented, and disparity. And, you know, these, these things aren't always politicized, right? You can match a diversity like biodiversity uh, or things like that, but they're, but they're often politicized, right? And you can, um, and you can't explain in a non-political way if they change over time, the frequency of these words. So as of 2020, uh, 30.4% of all grants had one of those terms. And this is across the eight, uh, or uh, seven fields, right? Yeah, and then, mm-hmm. and this was up from uh 2.9% in 1990. So you got a order of magnitude increase, right? Yeah. And, it's a pretty big increase. And like, it's, you know, this main metric, I mean, I've seen criticism already because it is a little bit loose, you know, and it's like, yeah, I can't guarantee that every usage of one of those terms in a grant, uh, abstract is you know the ideological version of the term of course you know biodiversity and there's you know in social sciences there's very you know reasonable reasons to talk about gender and disparities and marginalization and stuff like that but you would expect a kind of a a baseline that wouldn't fluctuate all that much over 30 years but we've seen most of these terms just jump hugely from 1990 to 2020 um and, you know, some of the some things that aren't, you know, in the work, because I thought it just it's it's kind of complicated. It's it's more difficult to uh, describe. But, you know, the, the these terms don't occur statistically independently of each other, too. Right. They they a lot of these terms kind of tend to hang out together more than you would expect randomly. Um, so they are probably more associated with a particular, you know, ideological worldview. Um, and so, you know, looking at any one of them independently you know just the fact that the the usage of the term woman has increased or something like that doesn't you know it doesn't it doesn't prove much but if you if you look at you know all of them in context of how they tend to hang out together um then then it does kind of in my mind anyway it does just definitely demonstrates a kind of increased politicization of uh nsf award abstracts yeah. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, you break it. I mean, it's not just that one 
graph showing those seven terms, right? You have tons and tons of terms, and each one has the exact same uh, pattern in every single field, right? So, I mean, biology, you know, started relatively high in diversity, right? But now it's, you know, several times higher. And so even math and physical sciences, uh, you have 22.6% have one of the big seven terms, and then from 0.9 in 1990, uh, similar results with computer and information science and engineering. Uh, did that did that surprise you, or did you just did you expect that even in the hard sciences? No, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, given you know what I've experienced in the last three years as a graduate student, um, you know it's funny. Like I, I, you know, my undergraduate institution was just uh, Northeastern Illinois University, which is not a particularly prestigious. Uh, <laughs> You know, you know, I don't want to knock on it. I got a really good education there, but it's not like a high prestige school. It's just a state, you know, university in Illinois, uh, kind of a compute, uh, commuter school. And um, you, this kind of stuff wasn't turned up as high at a school like that, which is ironic because that school, I think, is in Albany Park, which is the neighborhood of Chicago. And it's maybe one of the most like linguistically diverse zip codes in the country or at least in the Midwest. So, so that school did actually have a really high diversity of its student body um, as compared to Northwestern, which is, you know, it's more of an elite university. And so, uh, you know, at Northwestern, once I got to Northwestern, I saw a lot more of this stuff all of a sudden. Um, and, you know, a lot of it feels, you know, pretty performative. But, um, yeah, no, when I found this, I wasn't surprised at all because, you know, all, all the emails that go out from the different university departments and stuff send me regularly you know pay lip service to all these ideas so um i would have been surprised not to see it to be honest yeah and one of the so one of the criticisms i mean we're recording this on the uh, day it's released uh november uh, 16th um it's you know gotten a lot of tension already and then one of the you know the criticisms or sort of critiques that people say is that um it's just boilerplate right there's a broader goals uh, section in the NF- NSF abstract, and you're supposed to put something there. Um, how do you respond to that to sort of try to downplay the significance of the results? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, like, I, again, I saw one comment that, you know, kind of insinuated that the person who wrote this work has never actually uh, done an NSF uh, application. So I did apply for like the NSF GRFP uh, two years ago. And so I had to write my own uh, broader impacts uh, section for a grant application. Uh, but there's no, it doesn't require that you, um, you know, pay lip service to DEI or any, uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, or anything like that. Uh, you know, and, you know, I, you know, I didn't, do this analysis, but I wouldn't expect you would see lots of instances of terms like religious liberty or family values, like in these broader impact sections in the grant application. So yeah, it wants you to talk about, you know, the broader societal impacts of your work, but it, it doesn't, I don't think it requires you to use a lot of these, you know, kind of fashionable terms. Um, it's kind of tacitly expected, you know, people kind of know like, well, if you want to get, you know, if you want a better chance at funding, you should kind of toe the line and kind of, you know, check all these boxes and, you know, talk about diversity and talk about how you're going to try to, you know, reach out to underrepresented groups and get them more engaged with this kind of work and stuff like that. But um, I don't think that's, it's not explicitly enforced from the top down anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, Right. I mean, it's an odd 
defense of sort of the university. It's like, okay, at best, you're forcing people to uh, pay lip service or show allegiance to some political ideas, right? Um, and that's, you know, the defense of it. And then the idea would be this doesn't affect science at all, um, which maybe is, maybe is true in certain cases. But, I mean, it does have, right, it, it must have other costs, right? So, first of all, I mean, uh, some of them I've seen that they have you, you know, they make you, you know, you pretty much promise to go do tutoring for, you know, groups based on their race or their sex. And, you know, who knows if that's uh, cost-benefit justified, you know, if you're an elite scientist, maybe that's not the best use of time. But obviously, it's something that the, uh, uh, you know, that they're trying to encourage you to do. But also, I mean, it's it's an ideological litmus test, even if the research itself is not ideological um you know, if you're a conservative or you're a moderate i mean you're uncomfortable i mean i used to apply for academic jobs i was uncomfortable with the diversity statement um i maybe couldn't be as enthusiastic about it or like be as glowing in my support of affirmative action or my hatred of standardized tests and meritocracy you know as as other people uh, might have been so even if it's not related to the research it's still a political litmus test uh for the researchers themselves right yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, political litmus test, but kind of a temperamental litmus test, too, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. When they talk about diversity and stuff, it's like, but what about diversity of temperament, right? Like, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I identify sort of as a contrarian, you know, and, um, you know, have lots of scientific heroes who weren't necessarily the most agreeable sorts of people. And, you know, I thought, well, I've got these contrarian tendencies that are kind of annoying uh, under certain circumstances. But, you know, it seems like the best way to put them to use would be in this kind of, you know, scientific discourse, like, you know, step into the fray and try to kind of fight out what's correct about, you know, nature uh, and reality and stuff like that. Um, so to me, it, it, you know, it's not from a political perspective that it bothers me so much. It's just being forced to pay lip service to things that just like pretty obviously from an empirical standpoint, just have big fissures in them. You know, there's just, there's big problems with these, these presumptions that they make about, you know, the causes of disparity and stuff. And you're, you're not really supposed to raise questions about that. And that's, um, that's kind of what bothers me the most actually. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you're right. The temper, the temperamental litmus test, right? I mean, I, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of like you and that I, I don't like to say what I, just what other people are saying. And I mean, it is part of it's like political or intellectual commitments that make me, uh, you know, sort of repulsed by this stuff. But there's also sort of an aesthetic commitment not to use boilerplate and not to pay lip service to things that I don't believe in. And yeah, that I mean, people are like that are going to be hurt in these application uh, processes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's um, you know, it's funny you mentioned uh, dropping out of uh, high school. I, the, the, I was talking on Twitter the other day um, with uh, Megan McArdle uh, from the Washington Post. And, um, you know, something I, I said uh, was that the, um, like, you know, a lot of people with uh, nonconformist opinions, they tend to be, you know, good at standardized tests, not so good at GPA because whatever, they're just not good at following directions or they don't want to study the things that they're uh, supposed to study or, 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 you know, whatever. They're just not good at sitting there at a desk and like listening to uh, what a teacher says and then regurgitating, you know, what they're supposed to say. Um, 
And so, yeah, standardized tests are great for merit, but they're also great, I think, for finding people who are smart and nonconformist, while things like GPA and especially like extracurriculars, you know, going, finding the exact extracurricular that you're supposed to have to like, you know, have a better chance at getting into university. And, you know, there's political things here, too, where some extracurriculars are seen as, uh, uh, you know, more congenial to what uh, to what admissions offices like than than others and others actually hurt you. And so there's a move towards, um, you know, away from standardized tests towards these more, these measures of conformity and jumping through hoops. And this, you know, this trend in the NSF grants seems to be something similar. Um, Do you see that the same way? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, that's a whole nother uh, topic that, you know, I could go off on is, yeah, the whole move away from standardized tests really troubles me. you know, I think I think Razib Khan, who you you spent some time talking to, I'm not sure if it's his argument, but this the argument I've heard from him is that maybe above a certain high threshold, like GRE scores don't really determine academic success, you know. Um, but I think they do kind of closer to the median, right? And so a lot of people are using this argument like, well, you know, we look at GRE scores and we look at how successful people are at academic, you know. In, in their academic careers and it doesn't, you know, correlate that highly. Um, but, you know, I think we're going to see s- some not good things happen once they totally get rid of it as a requirement and just, you know, make, make admission standards way more qualitative. Um, I just, there's, there's, I mean, there's so many troubling things in, in the Academy or, you know, um, I'm, I'm attached to a, a lab that's, you know, partially within a school of education and social policy too. So, you know, I hear some of the more extreme things about, you know, mathematical rigor being a form of colonialism and things like that. And so, um, I think, you know, and I don't want to be hyper hyperbolic about this, but it seems like there is something that could be called like a war on merit. I don't know. Um, yeah. What have, what have you seen? Because I haven't been on the university campus in, uh, uh, regularly in uh, several years, and that's sort of a lifetime. So what, I mean, what have you seen uh, that's uh, disturbed you since you've been there? Well, I mean, you know, just trying to, you know, talk about anything like IQ or G in any, in any way. <laughs> it's just it's just a pretty big you know faux pas even in a discipline right. like computer science or something which to me is kind of ridiculous because uh, people who who you know can can do well in these technical you know fields are it's dishonest to to say that you're not an outlier in some way right it's dishonest to pretend that like oh just anybody can do this right you know um you know, a really exceptional athlete to just tell people who don't have very well developed, you know, bone structure or whatever, just like, oh, you could do this. Anybody can do this. And to me, it seems intellectually dishonest not to kind of acknowledge that, you know, um, people who, who you know, ha- do have these positions in elite institutions have them because of some, you know, random endowment, you know, that they got, that they happen to get. Um, but I, it just seems like there's a total denial that that's the case, at least on the surface of, you know, the, the kind of common discourse you hear. In, uh-huh. in the, in the how many, how many uh, women are in the computer science program in Northwestern approximately percentage wise? You know, Northwestern, 
in the PhD program, I mean, they do a pretty good job in terms of, you know, the, the, the courses I TA, which are probably, you know, mostly sophomores, some freshmen taking them tend to be, you know, I would say close to 30% women or something like that. But, uh-huh. um, it, you know, it varies a lot by specialization too. um, because there are some specializations in computer science that are like human computer interaction. And so more of it's about the design of interfaces and how, how people interact with, you know, computers. And it's not, it's not theoretical mathematics and rigorous proofs and things like that. And so those subdisciplines tend to have, you know, uh, more women in them. Um, but, you know, something like theoretical computer science tends to be, you know, 80 to 90%, you know, male generally. And that's, that's where we talk about the nature of computation and we kind of prove what is and what isn't computable within certain, you know, constraints. Um, so, so they're definitely, I mean, it's definitely a thing that's overall in the PhD program, the how many of the students to the PhD students, you said the undergrads are about 30% female. What does that, what does that get to when you're at the PhD level? At the PhD level, I bet we're at about 20, you know, I haven't, I haven't pulled it up and looked at it. Um, but it's probably it's probably right around twenty would be my guess. Yeah, um, it's it's yeah, it's sort of a it creates these very weird dynamics where it's like okay, you said uh, parts of computer science are like 90 percent male, um, and then you have these departments and they're like ninety percent male, right? And like like obviously they notice that but they must have self-awareness that they're you know not a random uh select a random selection of the population in this department or the subfield and then they have to go through life like flogging themselves over it right yeah there's so much hand-wringing and (laughs) self-flagellation and stuff like that definitely um you know i mean when i was uh first starting as a phd student um i was taking this introduction to phd studies class and there you know there was a professor who who I guess he didn't quite understand that you're not supposed to make these things explicit. So he just kind of proudly announced like, Oh, we really met the target for a number of new female PhD students. And we got, you know, we got this and that. And then kind of at the end he was like, but unfortunately we couldn't get any Inuit students. So like (laughs) he kind of made the mistake of making explicit what's supposed to be kind of tacit, you know, that they said Inuits really, huh? He said Inuits or is that? Yeah, he said like, unfortunately, we couldn't get any Inuits or, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest natives or something like that. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Like we we managed to fulfill all the other kind of requirements in our recruitment uh, kind of directive, but we couldn't do that one. God, what percentage of the population is Inuit? It's so stupid. It's It's probably really tiny. It's uh, yeah, it's it's really really tiny. You should not expect even by random chance to have I think any Inuits in your program. It's so it's so stupid. And you it, meet, I mean, you meet people from these really obscure places too, but they just they're not in the right category. So it's like they're not, you know, they're yeah, not counted right. as URM students. So it's like I don't know. I think there are only like three million like Mongolians on Earth or something like that, right? But you know, so to have two Mongolians in a PhD program is, you know, that's, that's a pretty good representation of a, of a small group. Right. But that, that just doesn't count. Uh, cause yeah. it's not the right. It's about category. 3 million in Mongolia, but there's more in, uh, that's true. More, more in China. China. Yeah, so, uh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you, do you, you have two Mongolians in your, uh, in your, uh, program, in your program? At least one. Okay. <laughs> but in my well, undergrad too. 
Um, so I was just like, well, that's those, that's, you know, that's a national origin that you don't meet very often. Um, yeah <laughs> that's funny so yeah so it's yeah it's, it's just like arbitrary right and that and the and the and the females in your program are they american because i remember looking at some engineering programs and i remember there were some where you know it was majority male and the females were like 100 percent foreigners even the males i think were you know a lot of foreigners too but for for females it was like 100 percent uh what percentage of you know, the female uh phd students you think are american and what percentage are not yeah, overwhelmingly, like not, um, you know, American born. Yeah, overwhelmingly. Um, yeah, you know, when I went to the the undergraduate I went to is is a is a school that serves a lot of kind of uh, North African and kind of Middle Eastern, uh, you know, groups, and you know, there there were probably more women. Um, in the, in the CS department and in that school, but yet yeah, none of them were, you know, um, American born. Yeah. Okay. So just, yeah, just wondering about that stuff. So yeah, that's, so that's the politicization. And then can you talk about the, uh, document similarity? What exactly did you do and what did you find there? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the document simul- similarity, like I was saying, like there are these techniques in natural language processing as like a set of tools or a subdiscipline of computer science, um, so oftentimes if we, you know, we get random news articles or something like that and we want to tell, oh, does this, is this a foreign policy article or is it human interest or is it, you know, a culture article or something like that? You can do a pretty good job at like categorizing those things just by counting the frequency of words that appear in the articles. Um, and you can, we can also kind of look at document difference. Like this is kind of a standard technique that you'd learn in like a natural language processing, like you know, undergraduate course or something like that, where you count all the words in the document and you count the relative frequency of words in the document. And then you represent that kind of as a vector, um, you know, like you stack them all up, all the frequencies is like little bars. And then you look at the general category and you count the frequency of all words in all documents in the category. And you kind of see like, do the, does the distribution of words look more similar to this category or more similar to that category? And then you can kind of make a prediction about, you know, where this particular, what particular category this document belongs in. Um, so what I did is I took, you know, all the abstracts in a given year in a given directorate. And I counted the uh, frequency of all the, of all the words in those documents. And I, you know, I use some natural language processing uh, tricks where you kind of throw out the most commonly used words in the English language that tend not to carry much, you know, semantic uh, meaning, um, you know, the, a, you know, prepositions, articles, things like that. Um, so I threw all those out and I tried to, you know, just count the words that kind of tended to have carry meaning and, and I looked at the frequency overall of all the abstracts in the division in a given year. And then I measured the distribute or the distance of the word frequency distribution of each individual article from kind of the mean of the category that it was in. And, uh, you know, every year I could kind of give a metric of how similar these um these documents all work. Okay, let me just uh, let me just sort of summarize it a way that I think you know might be easier for people to understand. Uh, so you just take you just take every document, and basically you're seeing how similar it is 
to other documents. So for example, like biological sciences is a uh, category. So you take, um, you basically take the words in biological sciences, the successful abstracts, the, in all of them, and then you see how similar they are, right? So you can compare that in like 1997 to biological sciences in 1998 or 1999, right? Correct. Yeah. And then, the, and then there's a slightly more complicated method, which involves distance of words, right? Can you explain that one? Yeah, so this method is, you know, um, I know you might hear a lot about these kind of language models coming out of uh, OpenAI and DeepMind and stuff like that. Um, they, they generate these really kind of flashy, like, headlines, and then they kind of underperform. But um, kind of one of the state-of-the-art things in, in machine learning when it comes to languages you want to find these numerical embeddings or encodings of words that like I have a word, um, you know, queen is a, is a word, right. And, it, and if, if I take it apart numerically, like there may be one number that represents like rank or something like that. And then there might be one number that represents, you know, genderedness or something like that. Um, so you want to you, you want to find ways of representing words with these arrays of numbers that kind of contain information about what the word means and so these big machine learning algorithms can be set to work on these huge corpuses of text scraped from the internet like just crawl the internet grab all the text you see throw it in this huge collection and then these machine learning algorithms try to figure out embeddings for these words that kind of capture their semantic properties um, so the idea is that words that have similar meanings should have very similar kind of, uh, numerical representations, right? Even if, you know, synonyms and things like that, um, and words that kind of mean the same thing in a different context should be similar in some of their numerical positions and only different in the ones that matter, right? Like king and queen should be very similar, uh, numerical representations, and only differ in the gender, you know, uh, dimension or something like that. So what I did is I took all the words in uh, the abstracts and then I kind of, you know, broke them down. I used these encodings and then I summed up all those numerical values, which is kind of like an aggregate of all the meaning in a particular abstract, right? And so I did that for particular individual abstracts, and I did that for all the text in all the abstracts of, right. the, of a directory. So it's like, okay, so it's like king and queen, like their distance. So there's uh, there's 300 vectors, right? And so I guess one of them is like gender, right? Male or female. And oh. one of them is like human, and they would be same on human. They should be identical like, in like almost everything except the gender. Except number. gender. Yeah. And then so they would be very similar. They would be like, you know, whatever. If one is most similar, they're like 0.95 or something right yeah so they would be pretty close together yeah um, okay and, and so and so you can and so instead of just looking at uh exact words right that that is that's uh that is called what, what what's the what's the instead of looking at words what's that one called that's the um just regular uh, average word frequency average cosine distance yeah then, i mean and in, in, you know we we have very creative terms in natural language processing we just call that random bag of words technique so uh, it's, it's kind of a naive way of doing it but it's 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 uh it's been pretty effective in a lot of tasks you know and you know a lot a lot of the uh the validation of these techniques too is that they're they're just they're used in industry they they end up being useful so they must have some validity right if they end up being useful 
Um, yeah, and so so you can compare based on exact words, and you can compare based on semantic similarity. Um, and then, so yeah, what did you find there? So the um, when we compare the word frequencies, we definitely get kind of uh, we get differences between um, directorates. We get some pretty pronounced differences between. Um, education and human resources directorate and kind of the rest of the directorates, which are more kind of uh, in hard sciences. One thing that surprised me was that the the social sciences actually are closer to the hard sciences in terms of, you know, frequency of ab or similarity of abstracts than they are to education and human resources. And that's also in the politicization, right? Education is just an outlier. Education is an outlier in like almost in almost every metric that I measured the education and human resources directorate just was just such an outlier, um, which did not surprise me one little bit at all. It was almost, I would have been surprised if that wasn't the case. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people think about, you know, talk about now human, uh, talk about uh, critical race theory. Look, I mean, there's a reason this stuff is happening in education. It is an ideological outlier. I mean, it is worse than every other field, which is at least somewhat connected to reality. Uh, you're right. Both in the politicization and document similarity, education is uh, is an outlier. And then the social sciences are more like the uh, the heart sciences. So, yeah, yeah which to, to me was a little surprising. But I guess a lot of the social sciences that get NSF funding are more um, you know, e- economics more empirical, more definitely. Yeah, if it was women's studies, I mean, education is sort of people pretend like it's a real science, but it's more like women's studies, where I think like everyone knows women's studies and like African American studies aren't real fields. Um, well, education, I think, still pretends to be a real field, right? I mean, they have this, they have these set of presumptions, these set of axioms that they they operate based on, but you can't challenge the axioms, right? So. Like, I guess some of these fields, like if you assume the axioms to be true are somewhat like internally consistent, maybe, but the axioms of the fields are pretty easy to just like kind of poke holes in empirically. Um, Yeah, I mean, an interesting anecdote, because I mean, now it's kind of, you know, critical race theory has entered the the culture war in this way that's just really hyperbolic. And, you know, people are trying to pretend that, you know, oh, no, there's no such thing as critical race theory that doesn't exist. you know, I was in a, a lab meeting and this was, you know, late 2018, early 2019 before, you know, things kind of got stirred up, um, you know, before this stuff really came to a big head, you know, before Christopher Rufo and before the, you know, George Floyd unrest and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And, and a, a visiting uh, faculty from the uh, School of Social Policy came and gave a talk about integrating critical race theory and he used the term critical race theory into the learning sciences so it's yeah it's it's definitely a thing that's that's pretty you know i think there are a lot of people who don't do it but are just kind of cowed into you know just giving it a pass you know kind of morally intimidated or something like that i mean a lot of people in private have told me that oh i don't you know i don't i don't love these ideas too much but you know they don't want to end up on the wrong end of a you know, a mob or something like that. So they just kind of give it a pass. Um, so I don't like, yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted because there are people in the education schools who really, you know, are working on interesting things that may, you know, help students learn difficult yeah, concepts. But they're not, yeah, but they're not ways. Um, so I don't want to bash the whole field, but they, you know, my main critique is they don't 
they don't do good gatekeeping or quality control, you know? Well, it's more than that, though. It's not that they had the, you know, it's like the gatekeepers are the PC crazy people. That's right? true. That, yeah. They're not a minority that's like, you know, just a little bit loud. I think it's the majority of the field is bad. And I think if you say, you know, you qualify and you say some researchers are good, I think that's, uh, I think that's the minority. Do you think that's right? Yeah, you know, I so I the the space I occupy that's related to education is particularly mathematical and particularly computational. Uh-huh. So I th- think we probably, you know, and you know, the lab I belong to probably practices a much higher degree of rigor than is kind of standard <laughs> in the fields. So um, yeah, things I've seen kind of out, venturing outside of my lab to talks or, you know, in classes where I've encountered other students from the School of Education are definitely worse than what goes on in my lab. So you think you're, yeah. you're probably right that, you know, yeah. you know, the idea of critical pedagogy is pretty standard thing, I think, in education schools now. Uh, and um, so, yeah, let's just I mean, let's just go back to the results. So, so yeah. you just started to talk about, you said education's an outlier. Okay, overall, uh, tell us about the document similarity results. So overall, with word frequency similarity, you see, you see some small declines. And then around 2018, over the last two years, you see some pretty pronounced declines. Um, I can't, I can't speak to why that is. I haven't, um, you know, I spent a whole summer just tinkering around with this stuff and I wanted to eventually like, okay, let's turn this into something. Let's stop, you know, let's stop pursuing all these little threads of curiosity in opposite directions. So, you know, that would be something interesting to look more into is, you know, what the real cause of the decline is in most of the directorates between 2018 and 2020. Um, but, you know, education has been consistently declining um, in terms of, uniqueness of documents in terms of their word frequency distributions and you know as the funding you know i i can't prove this but as you know the amount of funding increases and the amount of um you know awards themselves increase and stuff like that you would expect the diversity of ideas in a particular director to actually be growing um, that, that, that's my intuitive way of thinking about it. Um, but you know, the fact that they're stagnant and then they start to fall a little bit on average is, um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't prove that science is stagnating, but if you're coming to it with a prior that science is stagnating, it definitely doesn't refute your prior. You know, if you're, if you're kind of thinking, um, in Bayesian terms where you're just looking at evidence and every little piece of evidence you kind of use to kind of update the likelihood of your assumptions, then I think it would definitely push, it pushes me in that direction that, yeah, maybe there is something happening where science is kind of, you know, has been stagnating. Um, and so the other technique uh, that I use with the, with the word embeddings that actually, look at the semantic content of words and then try to compare the similarity of individual abstracts to the overall kind of semantic content of the whole directorate to which they belong. That gave a little more pronounced of a result that that showed a more consistent decline overall. Um, but that measure is really hard to like explain concretely what it means, right? It's just kind of a number um, Documents that were totally identical syntactically, you know, would have a uh, would have a cosine distance of, of like zero from each other, and you know, documents that were maximally 
different from each other would have a cosine distance of one. And so this, this, this decrease is not huge, um, but it's a, it's a decrease, right? Like the, 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 the direction of the thing you would expect if, and again, this is, this is somewhat unqualified, but I expect if science was, you know, of, you know, the funding of science was a very healthy institution and the funding was increasing that we'd be getting more breadth of ideas rather than fewer. Um, and again, the, I mean, my work doesn't intend to definitively claim that it proves that, you know, science is stagnating, but I think it provides some evidence that might nudge you in that direction. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's hard. You're right. It's hard to interpret. So, I mean, if you look at the average, uh, the uh, cosine distance of aggregate, aggregate word embedding uh, for all director, it goes from 0.1 in 1990 to around 0. 0.75 in 2020. So it's, I mean, it seems like it lost a quarter of its sort of diversity, but I, I don't think that's the right way to interpret it, right? Is there an intuitive way to explain what is the going from that 0.1 to 0.075 actually means? I don't think there is an intuitive way. Um, you know, I think the main the main thing is that the, the slope is <laughs> is negative. That's the only thing that really, you know, speaks to me is that, oh, there's a, there's a negative slope here. It's going down. It, how fast is it going down? I, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't. I don't expect there's any kind of dystopian world in which every abstract is identical. So it would, it would never reach zero, right? So how how, how far down can it go? I don't know. It, you know, it'd be, it, it'll be interesting to. Who knows what will happen in, in you know the next ten years? But it would be interesting to look back at this stuff with another decade of data and see what happens. Um, yeah. But yeah, overall, I mean, this is just, th this work is, you know, I have these priors, I've been observing these things, I have a lot of anecdotes building up, I'm just, I'm thinking, oh, I see a lot of, um, you know, you see work that the work is itself is, you know, and a lot of academic work is, I don't know if you follow, um, I think, you know, John Ioannidis is kind of a m meta a researcher of research kind of in sure. the medical realm at Stanford. And I think he got a lot of flack this year, but, um, you know, maybe some of it justified, I don't know, but, you know, in 2005 or something, he wrote a paper on why, you know, most published research is wrong. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of problems with scientific research with the replication crisis and just all kinds of things like that. Um, and it seems a little easier to mask kind of sloppy work if you dress it up with the right sort of sentiments you know if if your work is bad but it's about equity and inclusion or something you're more likely to get recognized probably you're more likely to get invited to speak on it um you know and if your work is bad and it's about something super controversial you know uh spatial you know reasoning abilities between different groups or something like that like people are going to pick it apart you know immediately so i think some of the you know one of the you know just anecdotal observations i had going into this was that like you know a lot of this woke language i think provides a kind of aegis to protect work from very serious criticisms people are a little intimidated to criticize work that purports to have you know good right thinking intentions you know what i mean yeah that, that that's right um Okay, so yeah, so we have basically politicization. We have uh, greater similarity between documents, right? We don't know 
exactly what that means, but we're sort of, we're, we're looking at the trend lines. And, you know, the question is, doesn't matter, right? Do you, I mean, so you connect this to people like uh, Tyler Cohen and Patrick Collison have talked about the uh, uh, slowdown in scientific and technological innovation. And that's such a broad topic and it's hard to get at. And a lot of people have written about it. But um, how do you see this as a contribution uh, uh, within that debate? You know, I wonder if there are people like like me who kind of, you know, it's easy to fall into a bubble and just, you know, consume the same kind of media and stuff like that. And, you know, so, you know, one of my reasons for doing this was my question is like, oh, I've just got sucked into this kind of moral panic about the decline of Western civilization and the quality of discourse and stuff like that. And so part of doing my work was just, again, you know, I've said this a number of times, just to kind of test my own priors, you know, um, if, if I found surprisingly contradictory results, I would have kind of hung up some of my uh, m- my grievances about what's going on in the academy, maybe. But, um, you know, I found things that tended to support my priors, I think. Um, again, they, you know, someone who disagrees strong with strongly with me about what's going on probably isn't going to be convinced by this work. I mean, it's not a definitive, rigorous proof. But, um, yeah, I think there are some trends. I mean, I think... You know, scientific progress is in, is important. Uh, you know, in, in sustaining the kind of you know um, you know economic growth that kind of maintains the standard of living that you know kind of support this you know progressive society that we live in or whatever, right? And, and to me, it's really some of this stuff is just kind of attacking the foundations of what supports all this. You know. Um, I mean, you know, any if you have any kind of historical awareness, like things things have not been wonderful for a lot of people in the past, you know, and and uh, part of, part of why things are better for a lot of people is because of you know people. I think people are a little more tolerant, a little kinder when they're not living just hand to mouth and kind of you know pitted against the elements and and everything like that. So. So, yeah, I think if we, we, you know, undermine our own scientific institutions, we could find ourselves in a lot, a lot bigger trouble. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, I think um, it's just troubling to me to see some of these, you know, uh, assumptions and, and um statements about you know the cause of different disparities and stuff like that just accepted by institutions so uncritically um that that bothers me a lot the you know the the nsf should you know there should be a there should be a big open debate about what equity means um we should look at things empirically we should you know we should talk about counterfactuals we should you know there should be a serious you know kind of discourse about this but it just doesn't seem like there is it just seems like it's being kind of shoehorned in by this like kind of bureaucracy that have all yeah i mean mean? yeah i mean it's you know it's hard to i mean get at politicization i mean so this is like you're just looking for certain magic words right yeah this Uh, is a really slot i mean what i'm doing is sloppy but it's like 
I don't think it's sloppy. I think it's I think it's rigorous research, right? But you know, it's limitations. It's very yeah, very yeah. Crude. I mean, so compared to like you know some of the some of the fields I'm adjacent to, where you you know you prove uh, that there's no you know solutions that exist to uh, Fermat's last theorem or something like that, you know, like that that's all very very airtight, you know. So I'm not used to stepping into kind of social science research and stuff like that. So to me, it's very it's a very different world, you know, and it, you have to add a lot more caveats and it's just, you know, um, but it, no, I don't think the research I've done is, is bad research given the the state of the art in terms of thinking about things like this. I mean, you know, I've definitely seen weaker research on, you know, uh, right wing networks on YouTube comments based on linguistic right. analysis and stuff like that too. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, yeah, this falls into the category of, you know, you're, you you can quibble over things, but it's so, the, the effect is, you know, the, the the underlying result is so large that nobody can really deny what's going on. We can debate, like, its significance and its importance and, you know, the broader implications, but there's no, like, you know, there's no getting around these results. Nobody's going to, like, take these results and show, even if you made a mistake, oh, well, you know, there's not an increase in these terms, right? That's just no way you're going to find that. Yeah, nobody's going to, nobody, I don't think anybody's going to even bother, like, digging into the code and just being like, you know, I dispute the, you know, the underlying findings that these words are actually increasing in frequency. But, you know, people are going to try to, um and, you know, maybe there's some, you know, validity to what they're trying to do and just say that, well, of course, you know, every society has some sort of, you know, um, ideological kind of disposition and, you know, institutions are not apolitical ever. And, you know, the, so, I mean, I think people are going to try to defend that it's appropriate or it's just not that dangerous. Um, and, you know, I, I, I fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, maybe, where I don't want to over, I think by overstating how bad this is too, then people can frame you as just, you know, um, you know, people are framing, you know, parents uh, reacting against critical race theory as like a moral panic or something like that. Right. So I, I don't want to appear as if I'm like gripped by moral panic, like, um, but I'm worried, you know? Yeah. Moral well, panic is, you know, is, is a, is a, um, is a term that like, you know, that's what you say when the other side, you know, you that's say it true, about the other yeah. side, nobody ever says I'm in the midst of a moral panic. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, the concern about racism and sexism and uh, disparities, that itself, I think, is the moral panic, right? It's just, it just depends on uh, your perspective. Yeah, yeah I absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, I've been guilty of convincing, you know, um, accusing other people about, you know, moral panic when it comes to a lot of this stuff, but then, you know, it kind of goes both ways. So it's like, I kind of want to try to stay a little nuanced about it where, you know, I, I, I understand how certain people can be like, yeah, this is happening, but it's not, you know, you know, it'll pass. I mean, some people just have this attitude, ah, this kind of happened in the nineties and then it kind of wound down a little bit and, you know, that'll happen again this time. But I, I don't know if I see that happening this time. I don't know. Yeah, it seems much more entrenched. And, you know, we have the data from the 90s, right? It, the 90s, you know, is covered in your uh, uh, in your report. And it seems like a lot, seems like a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, I remember the 90s. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like, it wasn't anything like this. 
Um, so do you, um, so, I mean, it's been out, like we said, uh, it's been out for, you know, most of the day today. Um, are you, um, have you gotten any reactions, um, that were, you know, uh, any, any, you know, do you, have you gotten any reactions from like people, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, that, that go, uh, that you go to school with, or is there, um, any negative reaction or do you, uh, or do you anticipate any or slash fear any? Um, you know, you know, I got some congratulations from some people in, um, uh, heterodox academy kind of we're not officially affiliated with heterodox academy but we're kind of stylized based on what they do at, you know at my university um so some people have emailed to me and said good job and stuff like that and other than just anonymous twitter accounts kind of criticizing it or some you know um first name only you know comments on um marginal revolution i haven't really gotten anything too damning or too um aggressive i i in some ways i see like if you act like you're not that scared like people don't come after you as aggressive (laughs) i use the analogy of like dogs like people who are terrified of dogs run from dogs and then the dogs just chase them and then they get more terrified and they run faster and the dog runs Uh faster but if you're comfortable with dogs and you just see a strange dog running towards you, you just kind of make eye contact with it and, you know, it kind of stops in front of you. And so I kind of, you know, I, I say contrarian things in my lab and, you know, I've, I've been lightly admonished for potential microaggressions, but nothing's like ever come of it, you know? Um, and, you know, I've, I kind of made fun of the concept of equity just being so, you know, ill-defined and just sort of a platitude before in a lab meeting and stuff. And, you know, some people will complain, but I, I haven't been kicked out of my program or anything like that. So, <laughs> um, I think, gra- yeah. I think graduate students, I think graduate students have a lot more security than non-tenure track faculty and postdocs. Because we kind of have contracts with the university. And also the university doesn't look good when they don't graduate people. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. as a grad student, I'm a little less vulnerable than someone who's like on the job market or something like that. Um, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so true. But you're scared they come after you. I mean, sometimes people ask me, you know, well, how, how do you say these things and, you know, not get canceled? And, you know, I, I wasn't as um, open as I am now that I'm out of the university, but I wasn't really hiding what I believed either when I was in, uh, when I was uh, as a uh, grad student. I mean, I, actually, I mean, beyond that, I mean, I was pretty, pretty open about what I believed. And um, yeah, nothing ever happened to me. Um, and I think it's right that like, you know, people will come after you and they'll pile on to you. But if you have no emotional like investment in like these people, right. If like, you can't be hurt by them, then, you know, they sort of don't bother. They're not going to claim your scalp because you, you know, you're not going to apologize. You're not going to back down. And then like, you know, they don't get the satisfaction of like putting someone down and making them, you know, remorseful. So for, you know, everyone out there listening, um, yeah, people, it, it, it is, it is like, like a, like the person who's afraid of dogs or not afraid of dogs, right? A lot of life is like this, right? Like we don't want to teach the the guys about uh, about uh, finding women to go out with them. It's just it's the same thing. It's like you know if you're scared, it's a uh, or if you're confident. Either way, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, yeah, it's so, definitely a yeah. positive feedback mechanism. I mean, you know, 
I don't like to use the word privilege, but <laughs> there's a, there's a thing maybe computer science privilege because in the academy we have we have a marketable skill, right? So we're <laughs> yeah. not terrified that we're not going to get one of the very few academic positions, like uh, you know someone in um, comparative poetry or you know what I mean. Like, um, yeah, I can you know even if everybody in the country hates me, I can just go be a programmer in Romania or something like that. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, I'll be, I'll be okay. Um, yeah, somewhere, somewhere over there in the Balkans will take me in for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is good. You're right. You have, you do have that privilege and people also assume that you're sort of smart too. So like, you know, they're a little afraid to argue with you if you have like intellectual credentials. I mean, I think that a lot of these people, they can, uh, they can sort of see, when they're intellectually overmatched, like they like making fun of like, you know, like dumb and educated people whose politics they don't like. And then like, you know, they, they don't want to, they don't really don't want to fight with somebody who's, you know, is actually probably smarter than them. And if you're not afraid of them too, I mean, you, you have less to worry about, but you know, I, I, I'm getting the impression that you're probably not going to go for a career in the Academy or is, is that not right? You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I definitely started with the intention to, um, but just the last three years have just made me feel like, uh, I don't know if I want to contribute, um, to this, you know, um, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I, you know, um, nothing against, well, I, you know, I can use myself as, as an example. I, you know, I taught a course this summer, um, and it's a course that I've taken, you know, I think as an undergrad, I had to take twice cause I switched schools. Uh, but the first time I took it, I took it at community college for, you know, I paid $300 or something like that, you know, uh, the tuition that the students paid in the version of it I taught over the summer, you know, probably three, $4,000 or something like that at the very minimum. Um, and not an appreciate, I don't think they learned appreciably more than I learned in community college when I paid $300 to take this course. And just so much of the tuition money is just going to, I mean, we have a we have like a vice president of wellness or something like that. now, you know, it's, it's, there's just so much excess and nonsense that is supported by the universities that I just feel like I wouldn't even feel good about like bringing money into the institution. You know, um, <laughs> yes. I mean, part of the thing that, you know, kind of motivated me to do this too, is when we were talking about writing, you know, grant proposals, you know, we have to factor in an additional 60% on top of whatever money we get to do, whatever scientific research we're doing to just give to the university for administrative fees. And so a lot of this, you know, you know, one of the subtext here is if if you've got like, if you've got a million dollar grant from the NSF, 600,000 would go to the university. No, if we, if we needed a million, we uh, would have to write a grant for 1.6. Like we would have to uh-huh. add an extra 60%. Okay. Um, but still, yeah. And who knows where that, you know, $600,000, you know, it goes to all this. I mean, to be honest, a lot of these, you know, the administration in the university is much worse than the academics in, ter- in terms of just promoting these kind of monolithic ideological worldviews. Right. I mean, the, the administration is, you know, the faculty are, you know, a lot of them are sort of politicized, but not, the, the the administration is just monolithic for the most part. Um, and, you yeah. know, they're just, um, they you think it's their job to indoctrinate, you know, undergrads and stuff like that. And, you know, just the, yeah. and you, 
you just morally, you don't want to be affiliated with such a, I felt the same way. I mean, when I was like, you know, when you think about education, it's just signaling, right? It's not even, you know, it's about, yeah, I mean, you're, you, you, there's money funneling into these institutions and what are you doing for four years? People are jumping through hoops, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Brian Kaplan. Yeah, I think Brian Kaplan thinks education is eighty percent signaling. I may be, I may think feel closer to sixty or something, but that's because I'm in a practical discipline too. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I, I, I'd be interested in. Uh, you talked to, um, you had a good conversation with um, Mark Van Driessen, uh, uh-huh. where he uses the metaphor of flying X wings into the Death Star. Um, in terms of disrupting kind of the big machine of, you know, university education in the West. And, you know, one of the things I'm potentially interested is in being involved in, you know, alternatives to, to, you know, uh, you know, online kind of certification things that teach actual marketable, useful skills for a reasonable amount of money without, you know, indoctrination. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm still interested in educating. Like I, I get a lot of satisfaction about helping people like acquire new competencies, um, which it seems like it's still some portion of education, but maybe not the, the majority. Um, so I, I mean, we still have interest in, in, you know, being involved in education right. in, in concepts, just not in, in, in the way it's currently practiced. Right. Not part of the education complex. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is fascinating. So what do you plan on, uh, what do you plan on working on next? I mean, do you, do you want to do more of this sort of social science, uh, research on things, you know, on things having to do with science or progress, or do you think you're going to take a break or, you know, what do you see yourself doing soon? Well, one of the, um, you know, one of the, one of the big critiques that we got that is, you know, is, is a, is a valid critique is someone, you know, I think in the paper we say the NSF is the largest, uh, scientific grants, uh, granting body in the, body US, in the right. U.S. And, the, you know, the NIH is actually bigger, but, the, you know, you could quibble over whether, you know, things related to health and medicine, you know, are di- a little different from just pure, like, physical sciences and stuff like that. But yeah, so it would be interesting. Broader, right, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, NSF, I, I mean, the yeah. NIH funds science, but it has to directly impact medicine or public health, I think, is is kind of the the idea where the NSF is the one that's supposed to just fund science for like intellectual curiosity sake too, to some extent. Um, But, you know, I would like to do maybe apply the same techniques to, you know, NIH um, grants too. And I have a suspicion just from, you know, people I follow who talk about, you know, kind of the the bad things um, that go on in, in healthcare research that probably, we're probably going to see something similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think nobody will have trouble believing that um, public health has been politicized. Yeah. Yeah. After the last year, after the last year or two. That's true. Yeah. That was a big thing that was disappointing to me because I always, you know, since coming to grad school and seeing how a lot of this works, I have, I feel like I get a lot less out of medicine because part of the benefit you get from medicine is just believing that the people who are doing it are actually hyper competent. Yeah. <laughs> and so now I'm just less assured by like, you know, medicine in general. Um, but yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I've always been interested in computer science in a broader kind of um, 
context, you know, how it applies to, you know, social and cultural processes. And I even come from a school where we think of all those things as being fundamentally computation, like, um, you know, there, there are these fields on, on the, on the borders of, uh, economics and social science, you know, uh, game theory, but there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole branch of computer science called computational game theory. And there's a branch of computer science called generative social science. So, um, in, in my broader research, that's not so immediately applicable to, you know, um, the politics of the day. I am interested in, you know, studying using different forms of computational modeling to to study how, you know, norms evolve in institutions. And one of my big interests is actually um, about signaling, about how these signaling, you know, about how these costly signaling sort of uh, equilibriums emerge in different in different settings. Um, and, you know, how what, what policy prescriptions can prevent such things from emerging, right? Because I think, you know, I think there's just in, in some professions, there's just an absurd degree of credentialism and we're wasting so much human talent on just people jumping through hoops to get jobs that don't really require that much. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I should be able to I should be able to just graduate high school and be pretty good at math and get a job yeah. teaching third graders how to do fractions or something like that. Right. I, I shouldn't need a master's degree overloaded with tons of kind of niche educational psych philosophy and stuff like that to teach to teach third graders to do fractions or just, you know, just all kinds of things like that. I think I think we exist in these terrible equilibriums of hyper credentialism. And, you know, I'm kind of a big I'm a, kind of a big believer in this narrative of, you know, elite overproduction is kind of destabilizing um, a lot of our political systems and stuff like that. And so. It'd be interesting to study from a computational perspective how we get into these regimes of elite overproduction and things like that. So, yeah, oh, fascinating. Uh, I, yeah, I have a lot of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is. Uh, I think this was a this is sort of a pessimistic conversation about universities and what's happening to science, but also I think an optimistic one in that you know there's a there's a lot of work you can do outside the academy, and you know we have to start thinking about ways to sort of you know if not reform, which I think is probably too hard and probably impossible, and they're uh, too far gone uh, to think about disruptive technologies and think about doing good research um, outside of you know established channels, and that's you know that's what i formed cspi to do and you know i'm glad we were able to uh publish this report and i uh yeah look forward to seeing more of your work yeah cool i look forward to continuing to work with you